Sometimes it's going to come to you this way. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning, and, and I have a question to start. It's a question I asked myself this week, and, and unfortunately, we all probably know the answer to this question. Have you ever made a decision to do something or to not do something, and yet you knew you should probably do the opposite of what you were about to do or not do? Right? This is the reality for most of us. There are moments in our lives we can all look back upon and think, I wish I had never done that, or I wish I had confessed this or that. And so I was thinking about when I was a kid. Did you guys have Hills department stores? Do you guys know what Hills is, right? So there's a Hills store about a mile from my house, but he had to cross two busy streets. And um, I was not supposed to like really go around the block, let alone a mile away. And so I was with a group of friends at someone else's house. And so we went to Hills. We ate popcorn and had slushies. I still have never told my parents this is my confession right now. I was thinking about another time when I was about 13 years old and my best friend Pete and I um, would occasionally go to a movie. It was a really big deal. as like a middle schooler to go to a movie. And so we, we went and we went and saw um, Huck Finn or Tom Sawyer or maybe it was, I don't know, something like that. That's the story anyway. So we went to the movie and we came back and, and uh, my parents had told me to grab a house key before I left and I didn't. And so they weren't home and... and um, my friend's mom would have just taken me to their house. But I said, no, it's okay. I can get in. And, and I said, I'll, I'm good. And she left. Well, I assume because in the back of my parents' house and the side where the garage is, there's a window that slid open. And that window always was unlocked because there was nothing to stop it from sliding except my dad had put a board in there so that window could not slide. So I'm looking at this. And I'm sitting here by myself. This is before like everyone had a cell phone. And so I'm trying to figure out what to do. And, and I thought, well... Our back door doesn't lock very well. It's always kind of loose. Sometimes you can even pull it open from the inside if you jiggle it just right. And so I thought, maybe you can do the same from the outside. You couldn't. I tried. And then I thought, well, maybe I'm just not hitting it hard enough. So then I had this split-second thought, you probably shouldn't do this, but I quickly dismissed that idea. And like in every movie, when someone kicks the door in and wood splinters, it really is cool. And I did it, and the door flew open, and wood went flying across the garage, and I had this moment of euphoric feeling of feeling invincible, and then I thought about my father coming home, and that feeling quickly faded away. <laughs> Probably about 30 minutes later, my mom came home, and she goes, how'd you get in the house if you didn't get a key? Um, as I tried to, like, tape back the door, I said, well... She looked, wait till your father comes home. <laughs> Have you ever noticed how when we get in trouble, it goes from being like our mom or our dad to being our mother or our father? Have you noticed that shift that happens in that moment? No longer do they sound so loving. But I think this is really what our relationship is like with God. There are moments we do something or we don't do something and we know we should have or shouldn't have, and so then we live in this fear of what may or may not come. At the same time, we know what we've been told to do, yet we, we really want to do the other thing because it sounds like more fun. And often there is that moment of euphoric fun or feeling where we do something we shouldn't do. But often I think it stems from misunderstanding of who God is. 
See, as we've been in this series moving away from the tomb towards new life, we, we've been looking at the way John and his gospel, he writes all throughout his, his premise for everything he writes is this, that God loves us. That in Jesus we see the fullness of God's love and it's poured out through his death on the cross and through his resurrection. And so God loves us. And that's the premise for everything John writes. It really is the gospel message. It's our hope this morning as we read from John chapter 14. I invite you to stand um, as we read from John. John 14, beginning with verse 22. Here's what the gospel writer John writes. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives, and do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father, and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is a scene in which Jesus is gathered with his followers, his friends. And I guess it's one of those scenes where maybe you think about being around a dinner table or at a coffee shop in a booth with friends, or maybe a backyard fire pit as we move into summer. This is a group of friends gathered around having a conversation, and he's sharing with them what seems to be bad news. But he's trying to help them see this bad news in a different light, in a different way, to see the bad news in a way that is hopeful, that is hope-filled. And so Judas asks him this question, not Judas, the one who betrayed him, but the other Judas. And Judas says, well, Jesus, ah, I believe you're the Messiah, the the Son of God, the one who's come to save us. I I believe that's true. But but why aren't you telling other people? I mean, are are you going to tell them? When are you going to tell them? And Jesus does what Jesus often does. He doesn't answer the question directly. He answers it indirectly. But but if I was to give you my paraphrase of his answer, it's this. Judas, I am telling them. Telling them by the way I live, but more importantly, I'm telling them by the way you live. See, people are going to know I am who I said I am by the way that you live. And I've got to be honest with you, I'm not sure I really like that answer, that the way in which we come to know who Jesus is is by his followers. I mean, that puts some pressure on us on the way that we live, those who call ourselves followers of Jesus. That is a tough thing for us to live into. And so the answer is Judas' question with beginning with this statement. Well, if you want to show that you love me and that you follow me, that I am who I say I am, obey my teaching. Obey me. Obedience is tough, right? When I was a kid, it's hard to listen to our parents. We try, and then we think that kicking in a door is a good idea. I mean, we try to listen to our parents, 
They told me not to do that before, um, but we often then do what we shouldn't do. I see obedience takes effort. Obedience is hard. Obedience and faithfulness are often linked together because to be faithful is to be obedient. And so this is where sometimes marriage is a good analogy. See, in the context of marriage, we, we make vows, we make commitments to one another. We say things like forsaking all others, which is a don't do. I'm not going to go to others. I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to make sure that no one takes your place in my life. You have a special place in relationship with me. But it's not that we obey so we don't do something, but it's that we're called to action in the midst of it. It's why we say we're committed to caring for someone in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad. In other words, when life's great and when life's miserable, when I'm crazy about you and when I'm not, when you're, you just think I'm crazy, I mean, whatever it looks like, that's to be the context, that's to, to be the heartbeat of what marriage is. It doesn't sometimes look like that. But see, this is the way that God functions. In the beginning, from the beginning of time, he's wanted to be in relationship with us. It's been always about God's love for us. From the beginning, that's been the story. So in the garden, it was this, I love you, this is all yours. But in order for Adam and Eve to show love to him, there had to be a sense in which there was a way they could not show love. And so the only thing they could do to not obey, to disobey, to not be obedient, the only thing they could do was choose fruit from the tree. Adam and Eve chose fruit from the tree. It chose a different direction, a way counter to God's relationship and love for that. But this really isn't new with Adam and Eve. That story continued all throughout the Old Testament. It, was, it continued in the story of Abraham, the one who God said, because of your faithfulness, I'll make you a blessing. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing to others. He said, I'll make you more numerous than the sand on the seashore. And Abraham's like, that's awesome. And then time passes, and he's like, I'm really old. My wife's really old. We can't have kids. She takes into his own hands. And God says, well, did you not trust me? I told you. We see it in the greatest king in the history of Israel, David. David, a man after God's own heart, supposed to be one place, but instead he's somewhere else. He looks across and sees his neighbor's wife and thinks, man, I want her to be my other wife. And then chaos and discord define his house from then on, and really it ultimately leads to the destruction of Israel. You see, we know in those moments there was something in David that knew there was a direction he shouldn't go, but, but often, even though we know there's a direction we shouldn't go, we choose to go that direction anyway. And this is what happens here. This is the question that we're left with to wrestle with. The question is this. How do we follow Jesus? How do we live as obedient people? If really that's the way that he calls us to love, I mean, obedience isn't just not doing something, but it's a call to action. Love is an action. Love is not a noun that we use to just describe, but love is a way of living. It isn't just something that we say, oh, I love you, but then I'm going to have no action that follows that. Love means action. And so if God loves us and our response is to be loved to him, that requires action. It requires a way of living, a way of doing life, not just not doing something. And see, this is where we probably all know moments in our lives where we could look back and think about things that we have done or not done and say, you know, I wish I hadn't done that. Or I wish I had done that. 
If we're honest, we look back at moments in our life and we think to ourselves, man, if I hadn't done that, I would have never hurt them. If I hadn't done that, I would have never hurt myself. If I hadn't, or if I had done this, I wouldn't live with this regret about what I didn't do. If, and it, maybe it applies in, applies in relationships. It applies in, in our education, our jobs. Frankly, it applies in almost every aspect of life that you can think of. There are things that we have done or not done that we know we should have or should not have done. And we find ourselves wrestling with that. But if we're honest... In those moments, there was often something that told us that we should not go that direction. Sometimes we talk about a conscience that exists in people, but but what if we said it this way? We believe in a God who in his pervenient grace for us goes before us. And so in those moments when we're not sure what direction to go, often there's a still small voice that we hear inside of us that says, hey, I'm not so sure this is a good idea. Maybe it's a brief moment. Maybe it's in the middle of the act, you're thinking, ooh, shouldn't have done this. Sometimes we quickly dismiss it and we move on. Other times we find ourselves going, ooh, maybe I won't do that now. See, what if that still small voice, what if that is the voice of God speaking to us? What if that is the voice of God who comes to us? See, if you're like me, you remember those moments in life when you did or didn't do something. How it created chaos and unrest and depression or brokenness. And yet God says to us here through Jesus, that if you'll trust me, if you'll follow me, if you'll be obedient to me, then in those moments my spirit will come to you. And in those moments when you're not sure what to do, in those moments when you are about to make a decision that will bring destruction or chaos or unrest or not peace in your life, that my spirit will come to you and it will be this still small voice that you hear. It's not your conscience that's getting you. It's the spirit of God who comes and helps convict us in moments to move in different directions, ways counter, ways that are not counter to the gospel of Jesus, ways that are not counter to what God desires for us. What Jesus is trying to tell his disciples at this moment is, hey, listen, what you don't yet know is this same spirit that I'm promising you is the same spirit that will raise me from the dead. It's the same spirit that gives life when it seems as if death reigns. That's the spirit that I will give you. And here's what that spirit will do. Here's what Jesus is trying to get across, that that this spirit will give you a greater understanding of who God is. At the same time, who God isn't. See, one of the things that that so often we end up responding to is, especially online, I mean, I think the internet's a great thing for resources, but man, there's a lot of dumb people out there. And I said dumb people who say dumb things. Maybe I should have said that. They're not necessarily dumb people. They just say really dumb things. And so I, I think about how often that we have to speak correctives in churches for what people who call themselves followers of Jesus say online. But not just online, it's and all kinds of comments here and there. As we speak correctives about what Jesus says, no, 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 that's not who my Father is. And we end up doing the same thing, going, no, 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 that's not who our Father is. So the Spirit leads us to a place where we more and more understand who God is. The Spirit also reminds us of Jesus' teaching. That's what he said. He said, obey my teaching. Obey the way of life I called you to. It isn't just to abstain from certain things, but it's to live into certain patterns and ways of life that will bring more life to you. 
And the other thing the Spirit does that we probably underestimate is in those moments when we're trying to make a decision about whether we're going to live in ways counter to God's desire for our lives, in those moments where we may make decisions that will be destructive to our families or to our friends or to ourselves, in those moments it's the Spirit that whispers to us those words of Scripture. It's the Spirit that whispers to us the words of Jesus. And maybe it's the Spirit who reminds us that Christ on the cross died so that we didn't have to live into the sinful ways of life any longer. It's the Spirit who dwells in us that brings us to that place. Jesus then goes on to talk about that through this Spirit you'll receive peace. My peace I give you. See, in Jesus' day, there was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And the peace of Rome was defined by this, that, that we will take your land over, we will rule you, we will be over you, but if you will pay your taxes, if you will do that, we will promise you peace. Now it's peace at the end of a sword, but it is peace. But their definition of peace was the absence of violence. It wasn't the all-encompassing way of peace of Jesus. It was this idea that in him, peace will reign in a different kind of way. Peace looks different than that. And what Jesus says in this moment is this, that there may be a promise that this peace of Rome, but it is bound by circumstances. The irony of the Roman peace was that if you went against it, then you were killed, which brought the opposite of peace. But this is the kind of peace that doesn't matter what our circumstances are. That regardless of our circumstances, that God gives peace, that regardless of what's going on, there is a peace that comes to us. It's why I can say today that I can tell you a story about friends of ours, Danny and Becca, and you've heard me talk about them before, but the Bowmans live in California, and they have two kids, Titus and Eli. Titus is my son's age. In fact, he's eight days younger than Isaac. Eight days younger. So I sometimes look at Isaac and I see Titus. I think about the fact that for them, they see their son. And when we moved here, Titus and Eli, or I mean Titus and Isaac were um, the same age, eight days apart, right? They were pretty much developmentally about the same space. But over time, about a year after we moved here, there are pictures of Titus online. And at that point, he basically, um, today, he, he can't talk, he can't walk, he can't eat. He's blind. He has seizures on a regular basis. He doesn't sleep well. This is what their reality is every single day. The reality for them is they know there will come a day in the near future when they will bury their son. And if that's not bad enough, their second son has the same thing. And they know that it's likely they will bury him as well. Probably before they reach the age of 12. I can't imagine living in that reality. I can't imagine that being true of my life. So I look at my son and I see theirs. Becca, though, writes a blog on a regular basis. And it's impressive to read. See, what Becca has received in her life that, that I don't know that I have the peace of God the way she does. That she acknowledges her depression and her pain and her hurt and her sorrow. And in the middle of all that, she believes and she confesses that God is still faithful in their lives. 
she finds and the hope that she finds in Jesus. This is the kind of peace Jesus is talking about, that regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what's going on around us, that we can find peace and hope in the midst of chaos, in the midst of our pain and despair and sorrow. If someone can confess that they have a sense of peace in the middle of all that, and there's something about God that is different. There's something about the work of Jesus that changes our lives. That's why I could tell you story after story about people who have offered forgiveness to those who've killed loved ones of theirs. So what Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples in accepting this peace, Jesus is taking the peace of Rome and he's flipping it over. In fact, he takes the symbol of the Roman peace, the cross, the symbol of death, the symbol of what happens when you don't follow our peace takes this symbol of death and he flips it around and it becomes a symbol of hope and life. That's why we have one in our sanctuary. 2,000 years ago, you would have never been excited to see a cross. It would have been a mark of death and destruction. And now we view it as a symbol of hope. This is what Jesus begins to do. But make no mistake, in the midst of this text... Jesus is saying to his disciples, we, we are at war. This is a war. It's not the war we often think of. It isn't one fought over national boundaries. It's not thought, fought over political or religious ideologies. It isn't fought over that. It's fought over, over our souls. It's this war that is raging inside each of us in our hearts about which way are we going to go, which direction are we going to give of our lives. What are we going to follow? What are we going to be obedient to? It's a war for our heart. But Jesus says to his disciples, there is a better way. There's a way that brings life. There's a way that brings peace in the midst of chaos. There's a way in which my spirit is present with you and dwells inside of you. And he does briefly address that Satan exists and is real and is at work in the world, but you notice how dismissive he is of that? Jesus is dismissive of him. He says, he has no hold on me. In fact, he says, do not be afraid. Do not have fear. Do not live into this place of fear. And if I'm honest with you today, one of the things that I think hinders the church, especially in America, is we live in places of fear. We're afraid. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if they get elected? Oh my goodness. Stop. All throughout the Gospels, all throughout the Old Testament, Jesus says again and again, do not be afraid. That's why we sing songs that say words like this, there's no power of hell or no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Jesus wants to remind us that there's no place for fear in following me because I have overcome even death. Jesus comes to us and says, have hope in me. Have hope that I really will do what I said I would do. And I mentioned, I said that we, we're at war. And often people say, well, we're at war with the world. Okay, I agree. And that's what Jesus said. But we, we our definition of world and his definition of world are two different things. We are not at war with other people, period. See, we believe and we say things like, well, 
I say we, meaning Christians, our culture. What we basically say is if they don't believe what I believe, if they don't live the way I want them to live, then we are at war with them. We disagree with them. What I find fascinating is Jesus in his life was most loved by the people least like him. Right, you get that? He was liked by the people who weren't like him at all. At the same time, the people who were like him, the people who were religious people of his day, were the people who didn't like him. Because Jesus lived in a different way of understanding that we often don't get. We assume we're at war with culture, or war with whatever, and, and frankly, I'm, I'm tired of hearing that because it isn't helpful. We are at war with principalities and powers of darkness. We are at war with the idea that evil exists. But here is how Jesus told us to confront that. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. You've heard it said, hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus takes the way of the world's war and says, throw that out because that doesn't work. If it worked, the Roman Empire would still exist, but it doesn't. There's no way of the world that will ever work, that will ever work forever. Thousands of years of human history show us every empire will fall. Every nation will crumble. What transcends in the midst of that is one who says, I've overcome the grave. Live into my peace, my peace that surpasses all understanding. My peace that comes to you and says, I will give you hope when it seems to be hopeless. My peace that says, Satan, eh, I don't care. There's no hold on me. There's no hold on my spirit. See, one of the things that I, I find disheartening is we argue with people online. We, meaning Christians, we think arguing people is going to help them come to know Jesus. But Jesus doesn't ever take that tact, ever, with people who don't know him. Ever. The only people Jesus ever argued with were people who already believed what he believed about God. And he was just trying to correct their view of God. See, this is one of the problems for us in the church, is we think we have to fight battles on every front. That isn't true. Jesus doesn't need us to defend him. He does it himself. Here's how he calls us to defend him. Love people. So I said the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Came across this quote this week that I thought was good to share. It says, God loves Jesus. This is a quote um, for this text describing John's view of what he's trying to get across here. God loves Jesus. Jesus loves God. God loves people. Jesus loves people. People love God through Jesus. People love each other. Heaven and earth, people and God, person and person, are all bound together by the bond of love. This really is a revolutionary way of following Jesus in obedience and love. This really is radical. This really does change the world. It's a way of living in which love is the embodiment of who we are. It's why when Jesus says, in answering Judas's question, 
Jesus, are you ever going to tell them who you are? Jesus does answer, and he says, yeah, I am. Obey my teaching. Follow me. Be my people. If you live in that way, then everyone will know who I am. In fact, this ragtag group of 12 individuals started a movement that 2,000 years later is still going strong. There are more Christians in the world today than any other religion. The 12 guys and really Paul furthered God's mission in the known world that in 300 years, the greatest empire in human history bowed down and wanted to call itself Christian because of the influence of those people. And they did it by this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if I didn't say beforehand, uh, this is a, a somewhat hard text, and I may have made you more confused than not. So I wrote three kind of summary points at the end. I didn't give them to you at the beginning, because if I did that, you probably wouldn't have listened the whole time and would have gone to sleep. So I waited to the end so you could hear them now. But if I was to summarize this text in three sentences, here's what they would be. Number one, Jesus takes the world's peace, the Pax Romana, and gives real peace. Second one is this. Jesus takes the symbol of death and makes it a symbol of hope and life. Finally, Jesus takes our fear and gives us his spirit. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead. The spirit that gives us peace in moments that make no sense. This is who Jesus is. This is who the Father is. This is what the Holy Spirit does. It enters into our lives and helps us in those moments to say, fear has no dominion over me. That I don't need to be afraid. The Spirit comes to us in such a way, so those moments in life that, that we know of previously, before we knew Jesus, we began to say things like, ah, it's not that big a deal. And later we realize how destructive it was. It's the Spirit that comes to us in those moments and says, listen, are you... Is this obeying his teaching? Is what this is, is this an action of love? It's the spirit that comes to us and prods us and leads us into places where we begin to live into patterns so we begin to say it in others, by the way that we live, by the way that we love, this is who Jesus is. Come know him. This is who Jesus is. You'll know him by the way we love one another. This is the challenge for you and I to embrace this idea that Jesus takes the symbols of the world, the false peace, and he flips it around and he takes the symbols of the world, the symbols of death, and he makes them symbols of hope and symbols of life. And then he invites us in to follow him with a reckless abandon where fear does not reign in our lives. And it's out of this place of obedience, this place of desiring to follow him in which we come to a table which we too were invited around that gathering at that bonfire in the backyard or that coffee shop or that dinner table. We're invited to be seated with him and others around this table and to take of this bread and this juice, these two elements that really are just 
bland wafers and a little bit of grape juice. It never feels like enough, but if you go buy it afterward, I promise you it doesn't taste the same. I don't know why. But to gather around and take these elements that are symbols of God's grace for us, to say to us, I know in those moments when you knew you should have gone one direction and you went the other, I know in those moments that chaos reigned in your life, that I want you to find my peace. And come to this table because then this peace is yours. This morning, if you, in just a few moments, want to come and take communion, we, we have open communion here, which means everyone is invited to come and participate. And by taking communion, you're saying that Jesus is Lord, and I want him to be Lord of my life. We take these elements as a symbol of Christ's death and resurrection, but really they're not symbols of death. He takes the symbols of death, the table that he gathered with his disciples, and he turns them into us, symbols of his broken body and shed blood, but they become for us symbols of life, symbols of hope. Symbols of grace. This morning, as we prepare to take those elements, uh, I invite you to come there for us, a way for us to be obedient to the call of God on our lives. A way for us to be obedient to his spirit and his leading. It's a way for us to say, when Judas asked the question, Jesus, how will people know who you are? Our response by taking these elements is saying, by the way that we live, People will come to know him by the way that we love, by the way that we embrace the work of the Spirit in our lives. Father, we help us this morning as we prepare to take these elements to be more and more aware of your Spirit's presence, to be more aware of the way in which you follow us, and you come to us, you invite us to know you more and more. As we do pray this morning that you would, uh, you would give us your strength, as we prepare to take these elements, that they would be for us saving grace this day. And we know that the saving grace only comes through the work of your Son, but we know that these elements are symbolic of, of his death and resurrection for us. So, Father, may we receive them from you this day in a way in which we recognize that you are present with us. We pray this all in your Son Jesus' name.